You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. This passage of scripture doesn't convince someone that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't know what will, because David specifically outlines the death of Jesus and he gives us some eerie and accurate details about the Lord's ordeal on the cross, prophetically. So I want us to look at this song of the Savior and I want us to notice three things today about it. We're going to notice his passion, his praise, and his posterity. As we look at Psalm 22, we'll notice his passion, his praise, and his posterity. Now, let's first of all notice his passion. Now, when we refer to the suffering of Jesus Christ, we often call it the passion. You have heard of the passion of the Christ, the famous movie. Well, we refer to that time of intense suffering as the passion of Jesus And it's utterly amazing how specifically this psalm forecasts the suffering and the death of the Messiah. By the way, Psalm 22 is one of the most recited and referred to uh, passages in the New Testament. I think the only other psalm that's probably recited a bit more is Psalm 110. But Psalm 22 is referred to often in the New Testament. So let's take a look at some of these references that we find here in Psalm 22 that tell us uh, about the suffering of the Savior, the suffering of the Messiah. Well, right off the bat, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was talking to a skeptic once. And I I said to him, do you realize that the very words that Jesus spoke on the cross were prophesied a thousand years before he even said them? And the guy said to me, oh, well, Jesus was probably just trying to impress people. And I said to him, really? You think that he's dying a a horrible, horrible death and he's going to think about impressing people? Oh yeah, Jesus was probably, you know, he was on the cross. It was something like this. He's dying on the cross and he's suffering and he's thinking, oh, what can I do to convince people that I really was the Messiah? Oh, I know. I'll quote a scripture. Um, What's what's that one in the Psalms? Uh, Oh yeah, my God, my God. What what is that again? Uh, My God, my God. Oh, why have you forsaken me? And some of you are chuckling and it's okay. It's a laughable thing that someone suggests that Jesus just... uh, pulled out some scriptures to recite in order to convince people when he was in such agony, when he was in such despair. This spontaneous outbreak in the Aramaic, Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He cried out. It was a spontaneous outburst of pain and the sense of abandonment that the sin of the world was dumped upon him and it was so ugly that God, as it were, turned his head the other way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How emotional this outburst is. It certainly could not have been something rehearsed. So a thousand years before Jesus would actually say these words, David said these words. Exact in their emotion, exact in their passion, exact in their meaning. But we go on and we find some other references here in verse 7. This might seem like a minor thing, but he says, they shoot out the lip 
and they shake the head or they wag their heads. The psalmist here is describing people's reaction to Christ. Matthew and Mark both allude to this in Matthew 27, 39. It says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. And we know as we read the scriptures that there were people who were sightseers at the cross. You know, a lot of people thought that that uh, crucifixion was a fun thing to watch, especially if they didn't like the person being crucified. And they, they went by the cross of Christ, and they, there were three of them there, but they looked up at Jesus, and a lot of the people wagged their heads, and they said, Oh, you saved others! You can't save yourself? And they wagged their heads. In other words, they were like, Tisk, tisk, what a failure, what a loser. Verse 8 goes on just a little bit further to describe the mockery that Jesus endured when he was crucified. Verse 8, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 42, actually gives a reference as this verse as he describes the mocking of the crowds. And as I said, they, they went by the cross and they looked up at the cross and they mocked Jesus. Why don't you come down there? Even the thieves that were crucified beside Jesus. Now, one of them changed his mind later, but at first they all said to Jesus, hey, why don't you save yourself? If you're the Messiah, save yourself. And by the way, save us as well. But they mocked him. They ridiculed him. And this was prophesied in Psalm 22. He trusted in the Lord. Let let the Lord deliver him. Let, Let him rescue him. Then verse 14 just floors me. There's so much in it. It's so pregnant with meaning as you look at verse 14 here. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. What a perfect depiction. What a perfect description of crucifixion. My bones are out of joint. Did you know that it was common in crucifixion for one's bones to pop out of joint? Because when somebody was transfixed on a cross, really the the way that they died was through suffocation and the person would reach up trying to, to breathe and would be gasping for air and then would fall back down and the weight upon the nails and the weight upon the body would often pull the bones right out of joint. My bones are out of joint. I am poured out like water, he says. Well, you know what happened when uh, Jesus finally died and the Romans wanted to check to make sure he was dead. What does it say? That the Roman centurion thrust the spear into Jesus and what came out? Water and blood. So literally, he poured himself out. He was poured out. Water and blood poured out of Jesus. And he says, my heart is melting. My heart has melted within me. His heart was broken. I mean, crucifixion actually did uh, do a lot of stress and and often caused people to die of heart failure through the grueling agony of hour upon hour of trying to breathe. And uh, many times the heart would just burst. And uh, That may have happened with Jesus, I don't know, but I know he was emotionally and spiritually heartbroken because he was on the cross for you and for me. He says, my tongue clings to my jaws. 
I'm thirsty. We know that Jesus, Jesus made seven statements on the cross, and one of those statements that he made was, I thirst. I'm thirsty. And so verse 14 is a very vivid, uh, very accurate description of what crucifixion would be like. Even before there was such a thing as crucifixion, because it hadn't been invented by the Romans yet. Verse 16, this is really eerie. (laughs) They pierced my hands and my feet. This is clearly a reference to crucifixion. But the only problem is, as I mentioned, crucifixion wasn't invented when David wrote these words. It would be centuries later, maybe eight or nine centuries later, before the Romans would start Uh, using crucifixion as a capital punishment and it became known as probably the most cruel way of punishing somebody. And yet he says here, they pierced my hands and my feet. The prophet Zechariah also uh, refers to this when it says here in Zechariah 12, 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, Then they will look on him whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. What this is telling me is that someday uh, our, our Jewish friends that are waiting for their Messiah to come, one day they will realize when Jesus returns that they missed the boat because Jesus came the first time. He was the Messiah and they will see the one who they pierce. They'll see the nail prints in his hands. And they'll mourn. How could we have been so blind? Verse 17. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. You know, before Jesus was even crucified, he was whipped. He was scourged. And the kind of whip that the Romans used, it was, a, oh, it was a hideous way of tormenting somebody. Often, before men uh, could be crucified, they would die from the whipping because this cat of nine tails, this whip that had nine extensions on it, at the end of each extension would be some lead or bone or glass. And as they applied that whip upon the back of the person and pulled it back, it would shred the skin, it would rip the skin right off the flesh so that it would expose one's ribs. Their, their bones would be exposed. Somebody was asking me one time about the passion of the Christ, since we are talking about the passion here. And they said, don't you think Mel Gibson got a little carried away? Don't you think that it's a little excessive, you know, the, the goriness of the passion of the Christ? And folks, I have studied crucifixion and the crucifixion of Jesus fairly extensively. And I have to tell you, I don't think Mel Gibson was exaggerating. It really was like that. And he says, I can count my bones. My bones are exposed. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Wow, how can we not see, looking back and reading Psalm 22, how can we not see that this is a picture of Jesus? All four Gospels describe this event. And John takes it a little bit further by declaring that, yes, it is a fulfillment of Scripture. 
So when we look at the first 18 verses or so of Psalm 22, we see intricate detail. We see great detail that could only be fulfilled through the death of Jesus on the cross. It could only be referring to crucifixion. And not just any crucifixion, but the crucifixion of the Messiah. And so in Psalm 22, we have the passion revealed to us. But wait, there's more. Because let's notice his praise. His praise. It's remarkable to me that in the midst of great suffering, there's always room for praise. Amen? In the second part of this psalm, the mood changes very dramatically. Very dramatically. Agonized pleading turns to ardent praise. The psalmist cries out, verse 22, In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In verse 23, he calls out to his brothers or those of faith to join him in praise. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. In fact, in this passage, uh, the word praise and trust are repeated several times. I find this incredibly impressive because crucifixion is, it's beyond the imagination how, how horrible, how... how um, how much anguish it caused upon a person for someone to be in such total agony to start praising the Lord is almost incomprehensible. Yet, he gives praise to, to God and invites us to praise the Lord. And indeed, Jesus did suffer be, beyond our comprehension, but the Bible reveals to us that although Jesus suffered intensely, immensely beyond our imagination, at the same time, it was a great joy for him to do so. Did you know that? Did you know that it was a joy for Jesus to go to the cross? Yes, he was in intense pain, beyond what we could possibly imagine. But it was a joy for him to do so. Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. The NLT puts it this way, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What a great example this is for us, that no matter how bad things get, there's always room for praise. There's always room to be grateful. There's always space for joy. We can read in the book of James. James comes out swinging in his book in verse 2. He goes, he right away says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy? How? How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. You look at Jesus. Why did Jesus have joy going to the cross. Did he enjoy the pain? Of course not. Did he enjoy the mockery? Of course not. Did he enjoy the, the sins of the world being dumped upon him? Of course not. Then how could he have joy? Because he knew the end result. He knew that he was dying for our sins. He knew that. And folks, when you know the end result, you can have joy. Even in the worst of storms. Even in the worst times of torment in your life. And David who was writing, you know, the, David was writing his own feelings and at the same time prophesying the feelings of the Messiah. And his own feelings were, yes, I'm in a crisis. Yes, my world's falling apart. 
but I'm still going to have joy. Because when we know the end result, when we know that we are going to have victory someday, you know, I don't know what you're going through here today. I, I, I don't know if, if there's anyone here that's really suffering or you're going through a, a horrible trial or a great crisis. I don't know what you're going through, but folks, I can guarantee, no, not I, the Word of God can guarantee that yes, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And there is joy. And your tears can be turned into triumph. And your pain can be turned into praise. And your doubting can be turned into shouting. And the mess that you are in right now can be turned into a message. Trust Him in the pain. Jesus did. He went through the ultimate uh, uh, agony on the cross. And yet, He did it willingly. And yes, joyfully. So we see the passion, and we see the praise. Now let's get to the, what I think is the best part of this psalm. The third part is his posterity. Now I know that word posterity sounds like a, a big word, uh, but the word posterity means, literally in the Hebrew, it means future generation, but the word posterity refers to a legacy that one leaves behind for future generations. When we talk about somebody's posterity, for posterity's sake, that means you're hoping that you can leave a legacy of some kind, that your life will live on and on and on, that other people can enjoy whatever you have done that is a benefit to them. David actually uses this word, at least in the New King James, in verse 30, it says, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. In other words, whatever the Messiah accomplishes, it's going to leave a legacy. That's what David is saying here. What he has done through, through this intense suffering is going to leave something for generation after generation after generation. There will be a legacy. Generations to follow will benefit from the Messiah's sacrifice. And I love the last four words of this psalm because I believe that the last four words of this psalm are also prophetic like many of the other statements in the psalm. He has done this. Isn't that great? That's a great way to end a psalm. It starts off with suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, but it ends in victory. The psalm doesn't end with uh, suffering. It is a proclamation at the end of victory. And he enthusiastically proclaims God's act of salvation and deliverance throughout all generations to come. That is the posterity of the Lord. That's the posterity of the Messiah. And you know those four words. He has done this. These four words are actually in the Hebrew one word. Eseh. Everybody say that. Ese. One word. Literally, it, it, it means he has done it. Or, more simply interpreted or translated, it is done. Hmm. One word that means it is done. It is finished. When Jesus was on the cross... 
I told you there were seven sayings. One of them was, I said, I thirst. But another, the last saying that Jesus said on the cross was, tetelestai, or tetelestai, as some say. It's one word in the Greek, tetelestai. And it means, it is finished. It is done. Folks, it means exactly the same thing as the word eisei that the psalmist used. It is done. And so I believe this is an allusion to uh, the crucifixion. And, and just as the psalmist proclaimed uh, God's deliverance of him, so should we revel in the fact that we have been delivered by the cross of Jesus Christ, that what Jesus did. By the way, it is finished. I could preach for hours on this, on, on, on the, the word tetelestai or tetelestai. It was used in different ways, but it was never used in a term of defeat. It was never used, it wasn't used like we might say today, you know, you're watching your, your favorite football game. Well, my daughter got a season ticket to the Ticats and they're doing horrible. Uh, and uh, we're going to go tomorrow to watch them play the Argos again and hopefully not lose again. But, you know, many times that when I see the final uh, clock is finally ticking down and, and the Thai cats are losing, I'm like, it's finished. <laughs> it's done. I say that in defeat. But tetelestai was never used as a term of defeat. It was always used as a term of accomplishment, of one having accomplished something, whether it was a servant obeying his master and coming back and saying, Tetelestai, it's done. I finished the job you sent me to do. Or whether it was uh, somebody selling pottery and they would stamp it with the word Tetelestai would mean it is done. That means when somebody would buy it and purchase it, there's the receipt. The word Tetelestai was the receipt. It's done. It's finished. The transaction is done. And I could go on and on with some other illustrations of how it was used. But folks, it is a declaration of victory. Amen? It is done. And I love the last four words. He has done this. He has done this. He has won this. He has accomplished the salvation of those who trust him. As I was reading the end of this psalm, I've got a very vivid imagination. Those who know me well know. I've got, you know, my imagination works overtime sometimes. And as I was reading this last couple of verses in Psalm 22, I started hearing Handel's Messiah. <laughs> Even though Handel's Messiah is not based upon this, but I, 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 could he, I could hear Handel's Messiah in my mind. I could hear, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. His posterity shall go on forever and ever and ever and ever. Why? Because of the cross. Because of his passion. I can praise him. And because I praise him, I know that his posterity, what he accomplished on the cross a couple thousand years ago to us, will never be forgotten. Will never be forgotten. So folks, in conclusion, don't be surprised that God would tell us about the Messiah's suffering over a thousand years before it actually occurred because God actually had the, the crucifixion. Jesus actually volunteered to be crucified 
not just a thousand years in David's time when he prophesied it, but before the world was even made. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Before this world was even created, God knew that we would sin and that we would be hopelessly lost in our sin and unable to rescue ourselves. And Jesus said, I'll be the rescuer even if it means intense suffering and my blood being shed for them, I'll do it. And they planned it from the very foundation of the earth. Have you put your trust in Him? Have you trusted in in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is coming again. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Part of uh, the Lord's Supper is not just remembering the death, but it's also anticipating the return. And I need to tell you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, it's much better to bow before him now than to bow in submission when it's too late to be his follower. Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, Paul proclaims this very clearly. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow. But unfortunately, some that bow before him, in the end, it'll be too late. They won't be bowing in gratitude. They'll be bowing because they have no choice. But they will not be ushered into the presence of God. So now is the time to decide if you want to be part of this eternal kingdom. Now is the time to embrace the suffering Savior, because He's coming back as the triumphant Lord. Will you receive Him as your triumphant Lord, as your King, as your friend? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the privilege of sharing just a brief look at this very, very deep prophetic messianic psalm this psalm of lament that you turned David's lament into a broadcast of something that would happen a thousand years later. The death of the Messiah and the victory that he would win on the cross. Lord, if there's even one person here who doesn't get it, who hasn't surrendered to you, Father, I I just pray they'd realize that all they need to do is just pour out their heart and just admit, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm hopelessly lost. Will you forgive me? Will you apply what you did on the cross for my sin? And they'll have eternal life. As we are led in just a moment to observe the Lord's table, may we appreciate even more our suffering Savior who got it done. He has done this. And he did it for us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your matchless, powerful name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.